0: Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for an opportunity to be here at a place that we have turned into a sanctuary to worship you. And God, I pray that that's what would happen here today, that we, in all of the things that we say and all of the things that we do, that we would truly be able to enter into a place of worship, a place where we exalt the name of Jesus, a place where we learn more about your nature and attributes, O God, a place where we can give you praise and honor and glory that is due your name, and also a place where you change us as we study your word, as we spend time with other people who are pursuing after you, and as your Holy Spirit comes among us and impacts us as we study this spiritual book. And so God, today, I pray that as we do that very thing, as we begin now to look into your word, I pray that it would come alive. It tells us itself that it is alive, that it is sharp and it's active, and it can divide down to the deepest parts of who we are as human beings. And I pray that today it would do that very thing. Challenge us, encourage us, and change us, we pray. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. All right. right, Second Peter chapter 3. If you were here with us last week, um, you will know that I told you that Peter, as I've told you all the way through this, this letter of Second Peter, Peter knew that life was almost over for him. He's writing this letter from a Roman prison. He has heard word come down through the guards or whoever else that his time is going to be cut short literally cut short, (laughs) and uh, that death is imminent for him. And because of that, he took the opportunity to write a letter to these churches to say, here are some things that I want you to be able to remember when I'm gone. Because here's some of these things that I think are important, things that are going to encourage you, things that are going to allow you to continue to follow after Jesus and let your lives be changed as time goes on. Now, I don't think Peter had any idea that a couple thousand years later, followers would still be reading his words and holding on to some of those promises. But that's what we find, and that's what we, what we learn about. And, and in chapter 3, where Peter shifted, as he about wraps up the letter, he shifted to this idea of the last days. He was picturing, okay, what's it going to be like at the very, very end of all things? I know that the end of my life is coming, but what about the end of all things when Jesus returns and earth itself is burned away and and there's a new heaven and a new earth and all of the fallenness and brokenness of the world is made right? What's that going to be like? And how can we prepare ourselves for that? And so he went back in his mind and thought about some of the things that Jesus had taught him and the rest of the disciples about the end times, about the last days and what that was all going to look like. And as we studied that last week, we learned that one of the things, one of the, the, the signs of the times, so to speak, that would happen in these last days was Peter told us there'd be people that would rise up that would scoff at the idea of God, at the return of Jesus, scoffing. And we talked about that word, what on earth is scoffing? It's just those that would mock the idea of Jesus' return or would doubt that there even is a God. And we discussed how that is the era that we live in now. 2,000 years later, there's lots of people that would scoff at the idea of God. And these people would appear and they'd question whether or not Jesus would return and why it was taking him so long. The point, he says, that a lot of scoffers are going to bring up is a good point. They're going to say, well, all you Christians keep saying Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. Well, where is he already? And and here we are 2,000 years later still saying the same thing. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. And it's a viable question for somebody who's a non-believer to say, well, yeah, where is the guy? You say he's going to come back. That's what you've always said about it. So here in in, uh, verse 8, where we begin here today, Peter's going to address that question, but he's also going to challenge us to live life in a way that we will be ready and waiting for Jesus' return. Whether it is this afternoon or next month or another 2,000 years from now, he says, you need to be ready and you need to be waiting So that's what we're gonna see here today. So as we start off in 2 Peter chapter three in verse eight, he says this, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. Peter is describing a God that's bigger than, than we can really comprehend. He's saying for God, I mean, it does seem like it's taken a really long time for him to get here, but for God, you have to understand for him, a thousand days is like a single day. A thousand years is like a minute. It doesn't, he's outside of time and space. All right, I, I should say he's beyond time and space because he's not outside. He's, he's within time and space, but also without. All right, and he says that this, this idea Um, that we are are saying, well, where is he? He should be here by now. I'm checking my watch and checking the calendar and Jesus should be back already and it doesn't make sense that he's taking so long. And Peter says, look, he's God. Our little time frame and our schedules and our way of viewing things is different than the way God sees things, the way that he understands time. I I remember when I was a, a, a little boy, I don't know, probably eight or nine years old, And this is a, a memory that I still have to this day. I remember at our church, we had this birthday party for one of the members of our church. And it was a birthday party for Mr. Sheehan, was his name. And Mr. Sheehan was 100 years old. And I remember as a little kid, we gathered together in the little church fellowship hall, and we had a birthday cake for him, and it was like potluck. And I remember as a little kid looking at this old wrinkled man, little guy mr sheehan who's a hundred years old and he just blew my mind thinking about how could a human being be a hundred that's so far from now it's so long it's so so out there all right and and yeah let's face it a hundred years is a lot of years to live on this world but now at 45 years old i'm like whoa i'm like almost halfway to mr sheehan you know and, and my idea of even somebody living 100 years is very different than it was when I was eight. That, that, the, the time stretches and shrinks as, as life goes on. Time flies. Last night, Aaron and I were so, with some old, old friends getting together and, and I'm looking at these kids that are all in high school now and cruising around and I, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I remember when these kids were like two, four you know, uh, little ones. And now it's like a blink, and here they are. They're driving to and from places and, and all of this. And, and, and that's the way time works for us. But let's be honest. In the grand scheme of the universe, we don't have that good of a grip on time. We really don't. It's hard for us to grasp it. And it's really difficult for us to try to e- comprehend eternity. When we say God is eternal, he always was. He always will be. He was before the beginning, and he will be all the way there through the end of history. It's hard. We we, we get stuck here. He exists beyond that. And our impatience with God is often based on our little finite understanding of time. So for us to say, well, Jesus, where are you already? It's taken way too long. It's Partially because we're stuck in our little limited viewpoint. We have a human concept of time. And it's humbling for us to realize that God's plan is much, much broader than even our lifetime. That's hard for us because everything is within context of our lifetime. And it's hard for us to understand that he's beyond that. The universe Really doesn't revolve around us, right? It can, might make you feel insignificant or it can cause you to recognize his significance. So Peter says, All right, the first answer to that question is when's Jesus coming back? He's not here yet. He's not here yet. The first answer is, Well, let's remember, he's a little bit beyond this and he's not exactly on our time frame. And he says there in verse 9, He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." Now, of the 12 apostles that lived life with Jesus while he was on earth, the 12 that he called, the 12 disciples, Peter, who wrote this letter, may have had the most personal understanding of Jesus's heart for people. And this is what I mean by that. All the disciples went with Jesus as he did the miraculous, incredible things that he did. All the disciples were there when he fed the 5,000 or when he healed the sick or when he was casting demons out of people. They saw the radical things that Jesus did, the miracles. They were there when Jesus was walking on water They saw all of that. But as far as knowing the heart of the man towards people, Peter had some insight that a lot of the other disciples didn't have. If you remember some of the stories of of Peter, not only was he one of the closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John were the three that Jesus often took even off by himself. Not only was he one of the closest, but he also was one of the ones to fall the furthest. From Jesus, Now, he didn't go down the path of Judas and actually fully betraying his Savior, but do you remember the time where Peter denied Jesus three times on the hardest day of Jesus's life, right? After Jesus was arrested and taken into the courtyard of the high priest, Peter was confronted by the servants saying, hey, you're with that guy, right? You're one of him. We should bring you in for the interrogation. And what did Peter say? Ah, no, I'm not with him. I don't know that Jesus guy. This is his savior, the one he's been walking with for all this time. This is the one that a few hours earlier, he said, I won't deny you. These other losers, they may pass on and, and back off, but not me, I'm fighting to the death with you. And a few hours later, Peter's the one that says, I don't know him. And it happens three times in a row. He denies Jesus. I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. But for Peter, he felt like not only did he let down Jesus like the others did, because if you look at the story closely, none of the other disciples were there, even in the courtyard. All the rest of them, they didn't even show up. But not only did he, he let him down there, he felt like his denial was borderline betrayal. Not quite as bad as Judas, but pretty close. But the good part of that for us, Is that his failure has a great benefit for us because what we get to see as we study through the Gospels, we get to see at the very end of the Gospel of John in chapter 21, we get to see Jesus taking that three times failure and turning it around to three times restoration and affirmation, confirming his love for Peter and Peter's love for Jesus. Do you remember that story? It's after Jesus has already died and resurrected. And he appears a few different times to the disciples. And one of the times, he appears on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they've been out fishing all night. And he makes a a little bonfire and prepares breakfast for the guys. And he calls them in and says, guys, I know it's been a long night. Come on, have some breakfast. And so the disciples come and they're all there. And while they're having breakfast, Jesus takes Peter aside and says to Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? do you love me more than these is actually the first thing that he says. Now, whether he's talking about the fish you just had for breakfast because Jesus cooked it and it was really good, or is it you love me more than the rest of these disciples? We don't know, but he just says, do you love me? And Peter gets an opportunity to say, Lord, you know I love you. And so Jesus says, then I want you to feed my sheep, referring to all the people that would be following Jesus. A couple minutes later, Jesus says the same thing to Peter. Peter Do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, you you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus says to him. And then a third time, and that's the one that kind of hits Peter. He's like, oh man, he's got to ask me this three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, then tend my sheep. Feed those sheep, follow me. And it's not until later that we realize Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter is confirmed by Jesus three times. It's like Jesus is going back and says, you know what, let's wipe that one out. Let's wipe that one out. Let's wipe that one out. Where do we stand? You say you love me, I say I love you. You go and do what I've called you to do. Right? That's how this works. And in that, I think Peter got to see Jesus's heart for people he realized Jesus has this heart that he wants to restore people. He wants to have a relationship with people. He wants to be connected to his creation, his people. He doesn't have this this false image that we sometimes have about God of he's not just there waiting to bust you. He's not just waiting to throw the lightning bolt and burn you to a crisp. That's not his heart toward you his heart is to actually restore. And that is what he said there in verse nine. He says, look, it's not that he's slow coming, even though some people call it slow, but it's that he's being patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. We don't realize, especially those who reject Jesus, that his so-called slow return is really a great expression of his mercy and love. Here's a statement, and this statement might even almost sound like heretical, like a false teaching to you at first, but God does not wish to send anyone to hell. No one. Now you might be like, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Where do I base that? Well, we just read the verse, a verse a second ago. How many people does he hope would perish? None. None not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, it says this, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now you might say, oh, well, that's just, again, you know, you're just reading from the New Testament. That's just, that's kind of the Jesus part of God. That's not God Almighty, you know, the, the creator. And that can't, mean you gotta be so. No, we can go back and listen to it straight from the mouth of God the Father too. You can go back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel 18, 32. Here's what God says. He says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, that's repenting, and live. God's heart for people is that they would turn and live, that they would repent and have life. He did not create you and make you and put breath in your lungs because he has this weird twisted mind where he just wants to torment you and torture you and kill you. That's not why we're here. That's not what we were created for. He desires that all people would reach repentance. And that's the worst of the worst human to the best of the best human, and everyone in between. Repentance is just turning away from sin and turning towards God. And repentance is not optional. We either come when we're invited or we do not come at all. As we've been studying through the, the, the end here, the end times, as Peter talks about here in chapter three, we've learned very clearly, we don't know the day or the hour. We went into that, and how Jesus said, look, nobody knows the day or the hour, but we know that we need to be prepared now. Jesus tells a story in, in uh, Matthew chapter 25 to illustrate this. And what he does is he pulls out this cultural story about a wedding in the first century. And they had some different customs, cultural things that they did differently there in those small little villages all around Israel. And that's what he, he goes back to. He says, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like this wedding party. And all these bridesmaids, what they would do usually in this time is the girls would all get together and have just a, a massive sleepover before all the wedding celebrations. All right, so the, the bride and all of her friends, they'd all come together, they'd all pile into one house, they'd hang out, I'm sure they would eat and do makeup and watch movies, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever girls do at some sleepover, right? And they hang out and they hang out and they wait. And they do this for a, some period of time until all of the preparations for the party happen and then the groom and some of the groomsmen come and, and this is at night, what they do is they come and they say, ladies, we're ready. And so everybody lights a torch or a lamp and they would walk through, make a procession through the little village and make a lot of noise and announce, the party's about to start. We're all, the wedding ceremony is gonna begin. Sounds kind of fun, right? It's kind of a surprise thing. So everybody kind of heads down the middle of the village. Everybody wakes up, gets out of their pajamas, comes on over to the, the feast, the wedding feast that's going to take place. And that was a a common cultural thing. And Jesus tells this story, and he says, look, when it comes to the end times and being ready or not, and, and coming to a place of repentance or not, you've got to be prepared, because you don't know when the time is going to be that they're going to come and say, it's time, let's go. So make sure you've got yourself ready and that you're waiting for what's going to take place. And what, here's what he says in Matthew 25, 5.13, 5-2-13, Jesus said, as the bridegroom was delayed, all right? He, he's slow returning, right? He hasn't come yet. All the bridesmaids, they all became drowsy and slept. They're like, yeah, we're ready for the party, but it's getting late, okay? I'm tired. We've been hanging out too long. They're falling, falling asleep. But it says, but at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Remember, you got to have your lamp, because you got to walk down the middle of the the main street, right? And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready... Went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The party began. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you neither you know neither the day nor the hour. Do you see his point? He says, You gotta be ready. If you want to be ready part of everything that's going to happen and take part in all of the festivities and everything the way it's supposed to be. You've got to be ready. If you're not ready, the plane's taken off without you. You've got to be ready. And despite the appearances, these, some of these bridesmaids were never prepared. Now, we have to bring that into our own context and realize, look, our life works that way too. We've got church people, people that go to church and have gone to church their whole lives. I mean, church people that are not prepared to meet the Lord, that are not ready for when the the time comes. And that's not the heart of God for us. He says, that's not how you want to be. You've got to be ready. Um, For those of you who were just on the fall retreat with us, in Idlewild, we studied the, the story of the prodigal son. And we looked a lot about repentance, at repentance, because repentance is one of the the big themes found in the prodigal son story. But one of the things that I taught you about repentance is that there's a difference between repentance and regret. Repentance and regret. We can regret a lot of our mistakes, a lot of our sins, a lot of things that we've done wrong. And we might be able to say, yeah, I really wish I hadn't done that thing. Repentance, though, is different than that repentance doesn't just stay at regret because in the story the way it worked with the prodigal son the prodigal son got his inheritance and he went out and blew it right and and he was totally broke there's a famine in the land he couldn't get a job anywhere and finally he took the only job he could get which was feeding pigs in a pig pen and so he's there in the pig pen and he's like i have regret I have blown it. I had a ton of money a little while ago. I've lived wildly and lavishly. I lost everything. And now look at me. I'm starving to death in a pig pen. I've got regret. But he didn't stay there. And this is where it shifts from regret to repentance. What did he do? He said, I'm going to return to the Father. I'm not just gonna sit here and wallow in the mud with the pigs. I'm actually gonna get up and I'm going to return and restore my relationship with my father. That's where repentance has to come. That's where it goes. In Romans 2, 4 to 8, it says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? This is again talking about Jesus waiting to return, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, that just means a heart that doesn't repent, that's the opposite of repenting is impenitence, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality— he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Here's what we have to learn from this passage here today. Those who do not repent are not ready. You can be full of regret. You can wish it didn't happen. You can... Bypass it all together and say, "I'll just do a lot of really good things in my life," and that'll kind of weigh out. It'll balance it out in the scales before God. But that's not what you hear about the gospel. The gospel says, no amount of your good works can fix the mark of sin that's on you. But what can is repentance. It is not God's desire that these people would see wrath and fury, but it is what will occur if people haven't repented. And that's what he goes on to say in 2 Peter, verse 10. He says, "'But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, "'and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, "'and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, "'and the earth and the works that are done on it "'will be exposed. "'When the day of the Lord,' as they phrase it here, "'the end of everything, "'when the day of the Lord finally arrives, It will be surprising because he's going to come like a thief. You're not going to expect it. Whoa! And it's going to be catastrophic. The earth's going to melt. It'll sneak up on those that are alive. And that's why Jesus repeatedly told us to always be prepared. Right? The Boy Scout motto. Be ready for his return. And let's face it. We might all be here when Jesus returns, none of us might be here. We don't know the day or the hour. Could he come before Christmas? Yes. Could he come this afternoon? Yes. Could it be another 2,000 years? Yes. I don't see why not. But regardless, whenever Jesus returns, none of us know when we'll have our last breath. Right? We know that. We've seen that. But the thing that we know with certainty is that we are mortal beings with immortal souls who will all stand before God at the end of all things. So here's a question for you now, as you read a verse like this. And um, <laughs> I, I guess I, I don't, well, I don't wanna apologize to you if you just come into church and, and uh, haven't been here for a while or whatever and you're hearing this and you're like, whoa, yeah, that's church. Whew, the day's coming when all, we'll all be judged and this is heavy. Yes, it, it's true. Um, but even if you read, there's there's so many other things in here that are so encouraging and and um, you know so much of the love and the joy that we find throughout Scripture. It just happens as we work through a book. This is where we come. But my question is this: Are you afraid to be exposed? As he says there that this is what's gonna happen, that all the, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, when you read that, are you kind of like, ooh, that's kind of scary. I don't like to think about that. I don't want God to look at all that I've done in my life. I don't really want all those books of history to be unfurled in front of the universe. Like, how big of a crowd is going to be there? They're all going to know everything that I've ever done, or said, or thought, oh, oh. No? You guys aren't scared. It's just me. Okay. Well, I need to get my heart right. No, but if you are a little scared when you think about that, I just want to tell you, look, don't shy away from the, the question, because I think all of us are afraid to some extent. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves up in fig leaves, right? When we know we've done something wrong, we want to hide. We don't want it exposed. We don't want it shown out there. We're not proud of all of our thoughts and all of our desires. And let's face it, there's some of the thoughts and desires and things that we've done that we shouldn't be proud of. We should be ashamed because they're shameful things. But in the very end, everything will be revealed to everyone. All of the actions of humanity will be judged. What's that mean? That means every murderer will account for their crimes. Every thief will be revealed even if they didn't get caught sometime in this life. Every sexual impropriety will be disclosed. Every lie will be remembered. Now, for some of those with strong morals, you, that kind of sounds good. You're like, it's about time. The world's been falling apart. I'm ready to see some justice come to this world. Well, before you get too high and mighty, don't forget also that even the works of the heart will be exposed. Listen to to Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 5. He's talking about this. He says, you have heard that it is was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard, down in verse 27, he goes on, he says, and you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, look, yeah, you're on the hook for your actions, what you actually went through with, but you're also on the hook for the things that are in your heart, the other stuff. Even, it's good that you didn't go on and murder that person that you wanted to murder but you're still gonna be judged for that murderous heart because the holiness of God, the righteousness of God is through and through and through perfect. There's not even an evil intent involved. Now, I won't ask for confessions from you guys today, (laughs) Um, but I'll confess to you, look, I'm guilty of those sins of the heart. Yet my guilt has been washed away by the blood of Jesus, who's cleansed me from all unrighteousness. And that's where my hope is. 1 John 1, 9, this is a verse to memorize if you don't have it memorized already. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8, 1 and 2, this is another well-known one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We don't have to be afraid when we read that verse. When we are are confronted with the fact that everything will be exposed, that's not made, that's not, I'm not telling you that to strike terror into your heart. We don't need to be afraid of that day, but we do need to be right with Jesus. We need to be ready for him. That's what Peter is telling us here. He says, yes, that day is coming. Yes, judgment's gonna take place. Yes, Jesus is gonna return. Yes, we're all gonna be on the hook for everything that we've done. But the good news of the gospel is you can be ready for that day. And all those sins and all that guilt and all that condemnation can be taken away in Jesus. That's what he came to do. And now he goes on in verse 11, we're, we're wrapping up here. Verse 11, he says, And since all of these things, the things of earth, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What Peter says is, Yes, that's all going to happen. So then, how should you be living? How should you then live and go through this life? If all that's true, how should you be living? And I'll tell you, this verse, well, specifically one word that we'll get to, has really been bouncing around in my heart and mind this week. Um, And I think that God's impressed it on me for a reason. Usually when something resonates with me like this, yes, it's for me, but it's probably also for you too. (laughs) And I think that we're gonna be seeing this in in the coming weeks as we some of the messages that we're gonna do, but I think there's a reason here. Um, and, And we're gonna get there. How is it? that you want to be found when that day comes. So if I tell you, hey, you've gotta be ready, make sure you've repented and you're right with God, that your relationship is right, how do you wanna be found? Peter says, what sort of people ought you be? When we see the big picture, God's perspective, it begins to focus things for our own lives. And Peter, even though he kind of gives us a question and an answer all in one verse, what sort of people should you be? Those are living lives of holiness and godliness. It's, that's where we've, we've got to be thinking. Am I living in this way? Is my life one that would be described as a holy life? Am I living with, with godliness? Are you really ready for his return? Now, we looked at godliness back in chapter one. We did a message um, called Qualities for Life. And godliness there, I told you, isn't being godlike Sometimes people get confused. They hear that word and they say, oh, this person's godly. That means that they're like God. No, that's not godly. Godliness is a reverence for God. Putting God at the center of life. That's how you're living life, in a godly manner of of remembering who I am and who he is. And I'm living life in that way. That's how we are are to be, no longer self-centered, but God-centered. But what about this word Holy holiness. That's the word that I'm focused on right now. Holiness. If you, if you search for holy in the Bible, I mean, for many of us, we don't have to go very far for holy, right? Losing paper. Holy Bible. (laughs) That's on the back of a lot of our Bibles. It's already holy, right? Well, if you go through and count them up, 698 times in the Bible, do you see the word holy? God often is telling his people, you be holy. You be holy. I'm holy. You be holy. And we're gonna get farther into that as we, as we study it out. Holy is something that's set apart for, from regular things. It's something that's sacred. And he calls us to that holiness. And so Peter says, look, if the world and things of it are passing away, our lives should be different. We should be set apart from the people around us who don't know the Lord. And a lot of times as Christians, we're just trying to figure out how we fit in How can I be more like the world around me so I don't feel like just a freak to them because I believe some pretty radical stuff? Let's face it, guys. If you're a Christian here today, what you believe is that a guy died and rose from the dead. You know how ridiculous that sounds to a lot of people? To most people? Yes, ridiculous. But that's what we believe. How is it that we're supposed to fit in? But God says, no, you realize you've got to actually be set apart. You should be a little bit different. It's not that we're better than those people. We're not better than non-believers. We may not be smarter or more talented, may not even be more moral than people that do not know the Lord or more compassionate. We don't have some superiority complex to say, well, I'm a Christian, so therefore. no. If you're a Christian, that means you've just been saved by grace. Somebody else rescued you. But we should be set apart from these people because we're called to be holy. And by definition, we should be separate from those who aren't consecrated to God. We live differently than those who do not know God, but that doesn't mean that we're to remove ourselves from life with those who do not know God. Don't forget the context here. What did he say at the beginning? He says, But God desires that nobody would perish. No one would perish. How are they going to know the gospel? Through Christians. If Christians have removed themselves from society, Christians can't deliver the message of the gospel. We are called to be among them, but set apart. We're called to be holy. And here's how he finishes our passage in verse 12 and 13 because we were gonna be his witnesses to the end of the earth, because we're set apart and holy and living holy and godly lives, thus, here's the other thing he says, you're gonna be ready, but also you're gonna be waiting. Verse 12, we're waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells not only are we to be ready, but we're to be waiting. It's right that you want Jesus to return. And it's not just on tax day or whatever. (laughs) It's good that we want the Lord to return. Because the day of Jesus, the day of God, when all things that are wrong on this earth, and on that day, all that stuff's gonna be taken care of. All sin and evil and death and destruction will be finished for eternity. Now, it's, it's interesting to think about that. Well, how would we hasten the day of God? Because we don't know the day. How can we speed up the process? Well, if God's waiting because of his patience um, and desire for more and more people to be saved, then I guess it would follow that the last person who will be saved, once, once they've repented, then the day will come. So how can we hasten the day? By sharing the good news of the gospel. And we know that that waiting is an active waiting. It's keeping our eyes on the future and living lives of holiness because of that future, but we're living those lives in the present and we're sharing the gospel to all that would listen. Not only will the day of God be the end of the fallen world, but it will be the beginning of the new heaven and new earth. And that's what he says there at the end. That's what we're looking towards we realize, guys, let's face it, there's a lot of pain, suffering, and struggle in this life. That's the way it is. But the Bible tells us there's a day coming when there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth where all those wrong things are gonna be made right. And if we are in right relationship with God and we're doing what he desires, we'll be there for eternity, and this world that you always hoped, I wish it could be like this, that's what it will be like. That's what we're to be calling others towards and be focused on ourselves. Now, I know that, that this might, a message like this might feel a little too cosmic in its scope. Like, whoa. Um, but that's God's word to us today. And I, my prayer for us is that we would all be found ready and waiting.